Hey, good morning. Uh, I want to start off by thanking, uh, once again, our young folks. I want to thank uh, John Lehman for working with the students in the back in the sound booth. Um, you guys have done a great job, and I'm looking forward to the rest of this service and then the next service as well. Uh, that said, feel free to get your Bibles ready and turn to our focus passage this morning, which is in Colossians chapter 3. We celebrate our graduates today. What we're really celebrating, as I already mentioned, is the work God's done in their lives to this point. Uh, but he's not done working in their lives. But there are going to be some changes and some new things uh, that, are going to, uh, that are going to happen, right? There's going to be some changes, some new things in this season of life. And so I want to ask a question. Does anyone else like new things or is it just me? Anybody like new things, shiny things? Sometimes, not all the time. Okay, at least I'm not the only one. It's about 50-50. All right, that's fine. Um, but here's the thing. Sometimes we can get things that are new that aren't material things, okay? So does anybody remember when they got their driver's license? All right. Anybody remember when they got their first car? All right. Let me suggest something here. At that point, there is this newfound freedom that you have to drive legally, by the way, in case some of you had issues before um, you got your license. So, you know, you get those things, and there's this newfound freedom that you have now that you have a driver's license. There's this attitude of, I can go wherever I want, whenever I want, which can be used, I would suggest, could be used for good or for evil, <laughs> depending on who you are, right? Or how about this one? Uh, what about when you moved out and no longer lived with your parents. Um, there's a newfound freedom. There's this thought of, I can do what I want. One that could be used for good or evil. Yes, I have no curfew. I can throw my dirty clothes on the floor. I can eat my dinner in my bed. I can drink straight out of the milk carton. I'm not suggesting you do those things, but what are those types of thoughts that you have when you have this newfound freedom that I don't have to be, I'm not under the same roof as my parents, I don't have to follow their rules, and you can do what you want, in theory. There's good and bad that comes with having that freedom, all right? There's good and bad, and sometimes you learn real quick what that looks like. You see, in Christ, we have a newfound freedom. We're no longer slaves to sin, but that freedom can be used for good or for evil. You see, if someone abuses that freedom and uses it as a license to continue sinning, it's being used for evil. If someone's using that newfound freedom to make choices that honor God, it's being used for good. And that is essentially where we pick up this morning in Colossians chapter 3. So Paul has written this letter to the church at Colossae. And in the first two chapters, he warns them of false teachers, and he reminds them of the truth of who Jesus really is. You see, the false teachers were teaching that Jesus wasn't God, that he was less than God. They were teaching that true spirituality was found in following more rules and doing more rituals. They were attacking the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And they were teaching that the law was still fully in play. And that people had to continue to submit to the regulations. And as chapter, two, or as chapter 2, verse 20 put it. And so Paul says, hey, you're not bound by the law anymore. You aren't held captive by sin anymore. You have freedom. So if you, if, if you can imagine hearing that, if you check out chapter 2, I'm not going to read all of chapter 2, but you check out the ends of chapter 2, he talks about it. Um, if, we've, if, we die, if we died with Christ, then why are we still following and doing these things? that don't help us 
And so he tells them, that's not what you're obligated to anymore. I would guess that for somebody to hear that, to say you don't have that obligation, the first thought would probably be, I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. But you see in chapter 20, or chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, if you've died with Christ. So if you're a believer, then why do you submit to regulations that don't stop the indulgence of the flesh? That's how chapter 2 ends. And so if you died with Christ, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You die to those legalistic obligations. And so we start chapter 3 with the parallel phrase, if you've been raised with Christ. So chapter 2, verse 20, if you died with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, if you've been raised with Christ. And so if you're a believer, you don't need to do those things. What does Paul say? Look, there's freedom from the law in Christ. That's what Paul says. Yeah, I can do what I want, but you can't do everything that you want. <laughs> And so he catches them off before they get that feeling. But that doesn't mean you can use this newfound freedom however you wish, is what Paul tells them. So in chapters 2 and 3, he addresses the two extremes that I think we find in churches across the nation today. We have those that are exceedingly legalistic, that you have to do X, Y, and Z. And we have those that are, you can live however you want because God still loves you. And we see those two extremes in churches across, especially Western civilization and Western culture. Paul's like, both of those are not right. And that's where the passage we look at today comes into play. See, anytime we go from doing something one way, uh, or from one way to another, anytime we go from something old to something new, it's a change. And so as we walk through the passage this morning, feel free to look at these things as changes that God looks for in our lives if we're raised with him and profess faith in him. Let's take a look at the passage. It's Colossians chapter 3, and then we'll pray together. Uh, it says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also uh, appear with him in glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for the, your word. God, I pray that as we dive into it this morning, um, Lord, that you would just speak a new truth into our hearts, into our lives, God, that you would give us reminders where we need reminders, and God, challenges where we need challenges, and God, just um, use me as a vessel, and um, God, just uh, be uh, the changer of hearts, as only you can do. God, we love you and thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. And so, in this passage, uh, one of the first things I want you to notice is that Paul doesn't immediately address the behavioral changes that show a life lived for Christ. Did you notice that? That's not the first thing he doesn't. He doesn't say, okay, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, go and do this and do this. If you notice, that starts in verse 5. So later on in the chapter, in chapter 3, verses 5 through 17, he gives this, uh, put to death these things, don't do these things anymore. Put on these things. This is how you should live. This is what your character should look like. These are how you should, how you should do these things. And so he doesn't start there. So what that tells me is that there has to be another change that happens before that. And so oftentimes, as Christians, we try to hold all people to the standard of what the Bible calls us to do. The problem is this. We can't hold non-Christians to the same standard. There's an order that happens first. First, someone gives their life to Jesus. Then Jesus begins to transform their heart and their mind, and then the behavior changes follow. And we see in verses 5 through 17, 
in, uh, in this passage, and we believe, we, we read those verses, and we believe everyone should be living this way, but we fail to remember that we didn't live that way before we knew Jesus. And we have to be raised with Christ. And these other fundamental changes have to take place first. We can't hold those that haven't been raised with Christ to the same expectations. And so these verses that we're looking at in chapter 3, 1 through 4, are transitional. As they go from Paul speaking against the false teachers and speaking uh, to freedom from the law to speaking about how we are called to live now. And so these four verses give us the foundation for any of the behavioral changes that we want to see take place. It's the foundation for how to use our newfound freedom. And so here we go. I want to give you guys uh, a few of these foundational pieces. And so here's number one. Uh, in, in verse one, if then you've been raised with Christ, we have a newfound position is what we have. See, we have a new position. We're no longer dead. Through Jesus' resurrection, we've been made alive in Christ. We're alive. We're not dead anymore. And for each one of us that are in this room, each one of us that are on this earth, we have a decision to make on whether to believe that Jesus is God's son, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, was buried, and rose again to save us, or not. For those of us that make that decision to give our life to Jesus, we've been raised with Christ to new life, and we stand in a different position than we did before. We're raised to new life. We have a new life in Christ. The before picture is rather bleak. We're slaves to sin. We're destined for hell. But for those who have been raised with Christ, you're alive and you've been given new life. That's good news, y'all. That's good news. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, it says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. There you see the buried and raised thing again. Where you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, that's the before position, dead in our trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Our change in position starts and ends with Christ. Apart from him, we can't. We identify with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, and through faith in him, we go from being dead in our trespasses to being alive together with him because of Jesus. I don't know if you saw that, that we're alive together with him. You catch that phrase, with him? We get to be with Jesus. That's a good thing. That's amazing news. We get to be with Jesus. And so this chapter opens by identifying the audience as those that are believers in Jesus. Those that have a newfound position. They're no longer slaves to their sin, but they are alive in Christ. And so the rest of this chapter that follows applies to those that are believers. We have a newfound position. We're raised to new life. We also have a newfound pursuit. As we look through the rest of verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 1 tells us to seek the things that are above. That's our pursuit. We're supposed to be seeking after, chasing after, pursuing the things that are above. Why? Because above is where Christ is. And if Christ is above, it's referring to him being in heaven. So to him being where God is. Paul is redirecting them to consider heavenly things as opposed to the false teachings that were grounded in worldly things and human traditions. Because that's what they had been taught over the years. And so to seek heavenly things is to set our affections upon them, to love them, to let our desires be toward heavenly things. 
You see, we must make heaven our scope and our aim because Christ sits at the right hand of God. And with Christ seated at the right hand of God, it's saying that, number one, our salvation is complete because his work is finished. And it's saying that he is the Lord over our lives because he's literally sitting in a position of authority and prominence. Why else are we to seek the things above? Well, the verse starts with if we've risen with Christ. So if we're justified, if we're sanctified by our union with Christ, then we seek the things that are above. We must mind the concerns of another world more than the concerns of this one, which is incredibly difficult. Would you agree? Because the ones in the world are the ones that we physically see each and every moment of each and every day. Those are the easy ones to focus on because they're the ones that are directly before us. They're the ones that are in our line of vision. And he's saying redirect your pursuit. Instead of seeking out all of these things you see in front of you, look up. Seek the things that are above. Seek the things that God loves. To seek the things above is to direct our heart's passions and pursuits toward those things that possess eternal value and substance. That's what we seek. Things that have eternal value and substance. So when considering your own pursuits and your own passions and my pursuits and my passions, I need to ask these questions. What's, what's the value of that in Christ's kingdom? Does it have value there? Does it have a purpose in accomplishing the mission of God? And does it contribute to building up his church? Those are some valuable questions to ask when considering our own passions and pursuits. See, we're called to live, uh, called to a newfound pursuit and our relationship with God and being raised to new life with Christ should stir those affections for him and change our passions and pursuits. So we've got a newfound position. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're now alive in Christ, and we have newfound pursuits. Seek the things that are above. Seek heavenly things. Seek eternal things. Focus the things that you pursue, your passions. Focus there. And in verse 2, we also have a newfound perspective. And so in verse 2, here's what it says. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Because when you gave your life to Jesus, you died to the flesh. You died to the things of this world. So they should no longer consume your thoughts and your mind. You and I died, and your life and my life is hidden with Christ in God, which is in the next verse, and we'll get there. In Philippians 2, verse 5, it tells us to have the same mind as Christ Jesus. And so you have this, this verse 2, set your mind on things that are above. Philippians 2, 5, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. And so we have this mindset, this attitude, this, this disposition, the temperament, this way of thinking and feeling and responding that Christ had. That's what we should look like. That's what we should set our mind on. See, setting our minds on things above allows us to have the mind of Christ because as you read throughout the Gospels about his life, he was always focused on the things that were above. Did he help with physical needs? Of course he did. But he was always focused on eternity and salvation. He was always focused on the kingdom and on his Father. In Romans 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In order for our minds to not be set on earthly things, they have to be transformed. 
And so the significance of reshaping the mind in the process of sanctification is foundational. We have to be able, our minds have to be transformed, they have to be renewed. Because what you think and the way that your mind sees, the way that you see things, your perspective, your thoughts, affect everything else that you and I do. Let's consider for a moment what things influence the way that we think. All right, I've got a list, but I want you to think about some things. So what would be some things that influence the way that you think? You don't need to give me an answer, but think about it in your mind. It could be the people that you surround yourself with. It could be the things that you put in front of your face on a screen. It could be music. It could be politics. It could be media. It could be so many other things that influence us. But let me ask this. If we allow the same voices to influence us, we listen to the same music, we watch the same TV and movies than we did before we met Jesus, where's the change? See, the Holy Spirit changes us, right? The Holy Spirit has that job. But that doesn't mean we sit there and do nothing. It's not, we're not called in Scripture to sit by, to sit by and just say, I'm going to keep living my life the way I've always lived my life, and the Spirit's just going to change me, and, and, and that'll make me stop. We are called to put in effort. And so, if we didn't read God's Word before we met Jesus, and you still don't read God's Word after, what does that say? What, are we, what we're saying is that we don't really want to set our mind on the things that are above. We're so enthralled with the things of the earth that we'd rather focus there. And so as much as the Spirit works in our hearts and transforms our mind, that doesn't mean we don't have to put in an effort. So what can we do? What are we called to focus our minds on? It's one of my favorite verses, and it's in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. It says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's what we fill our minds with. And if there's anything worthy of praise, it's Jesus. Verse 1 tells us that he's seated at the position of power and authority after completing the task of making salvation available to you and me. He is worthy. Think about him. Think about the things that he values. The only one worthy of worship and praise is seated in heaven, so let's set our minds on the things that are of heaven. See, heavenly values are to capture our imaginations, our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. The believer is to see everything, including earthly things, against the backdrop of eternity. The terminology in chapter 3, verse 2, to set our minds, it describes a reshaping of the thought process and the overall perspective based on the eternal realities of their salvation. And so our entire disposition should point itself toward the things of God and toward the things of heaven. And that's vital for several reasons. One, it allows us to fulfill the great commandment by loving the Lord our God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. And so by doing so, we're able to fulfill loving him with our mind. It protects us from the world's influence as the culture attempts to conform our thinking to its pattern. And then by having that perspective change, It guards our hearts and minds with God's peace as we dwell on the things that are above. So we have to look at things through a new lens, with a new perspective. The fourth thing that it gives us is a newfound assurance. All right, 
Or another word for that uh, could be security to some degree, all right? And that's in verses three and four. And so here's what it says. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so the assurance that's given here is threefold. One is that your salvation and eternity are secure. Two is that Jesus will appear again, and you can have assurance in that. And then the third thing is that we get to be with him in glory, and so there's assurance in being with him in glory. And so it says your life is hidden with Christ on high. Your salvation, your eternity, they're secure in Jesus. With Jesus being at the right hand, there is no one that can take you from him that can take me from him. In John chapter 10, verse 28, it says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When you're his, you're his. We have security there. We have assurance of our salvation. Prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, there would have been concern over their relationship with Christ if they didn't follow, or their relationship with God if they didn't follow certain laws. Now because of Jesus, even when sin happens, they can rest assured that their salvation is secure because their salvation is found in Jesus and not in themselves, not in ourselves. He gives us this great reminder that our true life, because it's hidden with Christ, is in another world. Galatians 6.14 says, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. That's the only thing we should boast in. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, when we give our lives to Jesus, the world isn't our aim, and it isn't what we live for. We were created for eternity, so we can have full assurance that our eternity is secure in the hand of the Father. Then we get to verse 4, and it says that Christ uh, appears, and when Christ appears, we will be with him in glory. So we have assurance that Christ is going to appear again. He will return. Some think it'll be real, real soon. Some of us hope and pray that it's real, real soon. He's returning. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, when he came the first time, it was to deal with sin. When he comes again, it'll be to save and to judge. Sin was dealt with in full when he came the first time, but he's coming again. And then it reminds us that we'll be with him in glory. In Philippians 3, verse 20, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We wait for his return so we can claim our eternal citizenship with him in heaven. That citizenship has to, has to trump the citizenship that you and I have here in earth, in this country, in this state, in this city, whatever you claim, our eternal citizenship is, pri- is priority. And so because Christ's return is imminent, our lives should be lived with a sense of urgency. That's what we're called to. So we have assurance of our salvation uh, in our eternity. There's an assurance of Christ's return and an assurance that we get to spend eternity with him in glory. And then we get to the fifth thing that it offers us in verse four, and that's a newfound purpose. Okay? And I want to tell you, this is, there's a phrase here in verse four that excites me and scares me more than any other phrase in this entire passage. All right? And here's what it is. <clears throat> when Christ who is your life, appears. 
Did you catch the phrase, who is your life? That is a beautiful phrase. Christ is your life. Your life is not your own. Christ is your life. The scary part for that, for me, is can I claim that? Do I live that? That Christ is really my life? Can I say that with full confidence in the way that I live? In the way that I treat people? In the way that I am a husband to my wife or a father to my children? Do I live that? But that phrase is powerful. When Christ, who is your life, see, we have a new purpose. Life isn't about you or me. And in our old life, we probably thought it was. But it's not. Life is about Christ. And what a claim to make. And so the purpose that we have, this new purpose, is twofold. While on earth, our life is about Christ, your life belongs to Christ. See, it belongs to him. And so in this life, we're called to live for him. So how, that brings to the question, how is Christ your life? Looking at that phrase. If it says Christ is your life, how is he your life? Let me give you a few examples. He is our source of life. In Genesis, God breathes life into his creation, breathes life into humanity. He is our source of life. God is also our sustainer of life. Every breath that we have, the ability to be alive at this very moment is God-given. He sustains us. How is Christ your life? Well, eternal life is ours, but only through him. And then we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. Our life belongs to him. He bought it. And the price was steep. It was the life of Jesus. He purchased us. We're his. And our earthly life is about Christ and Christ alone. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When Christ who is your life, can we make that claim? That is a heavy claim. That's one I want to be able to make. See, when Christ is our life, his priorities trump our preferences. Did y'all catch that? When Christ is our life, his priorities trump our preferences. And that's something that's hard to fathom sometimes. Because we want what we want, and we don't want to give it up for anyone. See, Christ is the point. In Philippians 1.21 Paul says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So to live is literally is Christ. That's it. Your purpose, my purpose, every single moment of every single day is to show Christ. That's it. It ain't about you. It ain't about me. It ain't about my mom and dad. It ain't about my wife or my kids. Every moment of every day is about Jesus. And when I live Jesus, then that directly impacts my relationship with my wife my kids, and my parents, and my friends, and everybody else. All we say and do is built on and around Jesus. He's the focus of our aspirations and the reason for our existence. The second aspect of this here in verse 4 is that while we're on earth, we live with an eternal purpose. That's the second aspect. So we live here and we live now in light of eternity. Our mind has to keep eternity at the forefront. How we interact with people, 
think about that in light of eternity. Not just your eternity, but their eternity. When you talk to somebody, you're at the supermarket, you're at the grocery store, you're at the mall, I don't care where you are, when you interact with somebody else, do you ever consider their eternity or their salvation? Those types of things have to be at the forefront of our mind because we have to live with that type of purpose because we have to live with that type of urgency. We don't know when he's coming back. It could be any moment of any day. How we approach pain and suffering. What if we approached those things through the lens of an eternal purpose, knowing that one day we'll be with Jesus in glory and we want others that we love to be there with us? See, when we identify with Christ, it means we have a glorious future. And so we see that eternity. When Christ appears, we'll appear with him. What's been hidden will be revealed. And so the, return, the glory of Christ's return reminds us of the temporal nature of this world, that it's temporary, that it's the, the value of the possessions and pleasures of this world is fleeting. And so we shouldn't be per- deceived by the vain pursuit of earthly wealth, achievement, status, those types of things. See, in Christ, we're citizens of heaven. We shouldn't be deterred or distracted by the desires of the flesh. So we live with this new purpose, this newfound purpose of my life is Christ. It's not me, it's Christ. That's my life. And I want to live that life with an eternal purpose in everything that I do. So the last point we're going to get to is this. Why would we live with a newfound purpose or a newfound perspective or pursuits? What motivates us to do that? And so that's the last one is we have a newfound motivation. And here's what that motivation is. That motivation is the love of Christ. The love of God is our motivation to live for him. Did you hear that? The love of God, the love is the motivation to live. The love of God is the motivation for us to live for him. He died for us, we can live for him. The motivation is his love for us and our love for him. You see, previously, uh, for many, the motivation to follow the law wasn't always a relationship with God, but it might have been done out of a motivation that was obligation or a fear of consequences. And so there's a change in motivation. Now, because of what Christ has already done for us, the motivation is love. Love is central to the new covenant that Jesus brought. As a matter of fact, uh, it's central to the main two commandments that he gives, to love God and to love your neighbor. And so because he loved us and gave his life for us, our reciprocation of that love should motivate us to live for him. The love of Christ motivates us. He died for you. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. In being seated, it reminds us that his work for our salvation is complete. You and I don't have to do anything to earn it. That's good news, because you and I aren't good enough. Our best is filthy rags. And Christ has a place for us in glory. And so our motivation to live a life that would please God, a life that we're called to live, that motivation comes from reciprocating the love that Jesus has already shown us. See, these things are the foundational elements we need to understand before expecting a change in behavior. So while death in Christ frees us from the law, we have this newfound freedom, and our faith in Christ raises us to new life. This redeemed life begins with a spiritual change that occurs in the heart. 
New life in Christ transforms us at a more fundamental level by giving us a newfound position with newfound pursuits, perspective, assurance, purpose, and motivation. So this morning, uh, I'm ending with a twofold challenge, okay? So if you fell asleep, this is the part you should wake up for. Uh, you missed the rest, so the challenge isn't going to mean a whole lot, but here it goes, all right? Twofold challenge I want to end with. In Christ, there's a newfound freedom. The challenge is, are you using it for good? So I challenge you, use it for good. Let what Christ has done for you motivate you to live for him. Use that freedom for good. If you're somebody that adopted the mindset of, I can do what I want because Christ saved me and he gives me grace and mercy and he promises to forgive me for all of my sins, you missed part of the message of Scripture. That's the first part. The second challenge is to consider the claim that Christ is your life. If you can't make that claim that Christ is your life, consider what you need to do to make that claim true this morning. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you love us, that you care for us that you give us the things that we need on a regular basis. God, I'm thankful for new life that we have in you. God, that you took us from the old, bleak picture that we had. God, as sinners destined for hell, and you gave us an opportunity for salvation. Lord, thank you for that. God, I pray that your word challenges us this morning to make you our life. God, to put aside our own personal agendas, our own personal preferences, uh, whatever the cases are, God, in order to seek after your purpose and your priorities. God, allow us to live in light of eternity and to live with urgency with the message of the gospel. God, I thank you for your word. It's in your name I pray. Amen.